thank uh, Pastor Marcus and the praise team for leading us this morning. It's uh, so precious for, for us to gather and sing such uh, Christ-centered, God-honoring, soul-satisfying songs together as a congregation, expressing our heart's devotion to God and our utter thanksgiving for the work that God has done in each of our lives through the cross of Christ. Thank you for leading us, uh, for serving us in that way. Truly thank God for your uh, faithful ministry. Also, just uh, we want to lift praises to God and thank all the servants that uh, tirelessly served this week after a full day of uh, work and for a lot of the moms just caring for their children uh, five nights in a row, ministering to the children through VBS. It was uh, an amazing sight to behold. So much uh, labor and, and and just earnest effort on the part of the saints here at Cornerstone. Truly thank God for you. Um, as uh, one of the pastors at Cornerstone, I was uh, just proud in Christ of uh, the work that, that God has granted to all of us to care for these young souls. And we are all confident that as we are faithful in sowing the seed of God's Word and faithful in watering it by prayer, that God will in His time cause growth and many of our children will follow Christ and be oaks of righteousness for the next generation. Just praise God for you. Thank God for you. May we continue to pray for our children's ministry. Uh, please, during the week, remember to pray for our families. Pray for our children that are in pebbles and children's ministry and junior high and now high school and some of those collegians as well who are kind of you know, younger as well. Pray for them that they would uh, continue to grow in Christ. We're now in our part four of a four-part study, final part of our four-part study, the Apostle Paul. My plan is to start our study in 2 Timothy next week. But, you know, man makes plans, but God determines the steps. We'll trust the Lord next week. That is the plan as of now. I shared this with our Old Old Testament class last week. It was somewhat embarrassing, but I shared it with them last week, so I might as well share it with you guys to start our study this morning. We're studying the book of Numbers and looking at um, God's blessings for obedience and the consequences for disobedience. That every sin has consequences. Um, and even though we might receive forgiveness from God for our sins, Oftentimes, consequences remain and continue. That we might be done with sin, but that sin is not done with us. That we might be done with sins, but the consequences of sin remain and abide and bear fruit. Oftentimes, many years after the fact. And I see that in my own life. There, I was a very sinful young man, very uh, proud and... Um, just lazy and involved in just foolish things, you know, of, of legal things in my life. And uh, when I followed, began, when God saved me, I was done with those things. But the consequences continue even to this day, namely in terms of my, terms of my health of my teeth, right? My teeth aren't, aren't too good. You know, if we have a mechanic in our church, I can't wait to take my car to get it fixed by you. We have accountants. I have no problem having you looking at my 
tax records and doing my taxes. But if we ever have a dentist in our church, no way am I going to you to get dental work done. Because not only the two intimate, somebody kind of coming to my teeth and doing work on my mouth, but I know you will lose respect for me. <laughs> so I think with all the work that's been done on my teeth, that we could buy a small Honda Civic, at least a used Honda Civic, over the years. So recently, uh, my, I had a, a molar removed several years ago, and uh, you know I need to get it replaced. Go to the dentist, and he says, you need to get a bridge work done. And I trust my dentist. Okay, uh, we set an appointment. And I'm 37 years old now. I've, I've, I've lived life. I know how, how life works and how the angles work. And you can't really trust anyone except for fellow Christians and your pastor, right? And your flock shepherds and people in the church. You can't trust Even your dentist, you can't trust them. So I come home and I Google bridge work and dental forums and I research these things. And I find out that for a young person, it's not a good deal because what they do is they shave the neighboring teeth to put a tooth uh, where it's missing, and it lasts, at best, 15 years, maybe 10, sometimes 5 years. So I'm 37 years old, so 10 years, 15 years, by the time I'm 50, I'll need to do the bridge again. And so I did some more research and I found out that dental implants are the way to go. It might cost a little bit more, but with, a, with proper care, it could last you your whole lifetime. So I canceled my appointment with that dentist. I went in search of another uh, dentist, an oral surgeon, found this guy. You know, he graduated UCLA, so I guess I could trust him. Right? Um, and uh, he did an exploratory exam, and he said, I'm a great candidate for implant surgery for just the reasons that I mentioned to you. Set up an appointment about three weeks ago. So I'm like nervous. I go in and and he numbs me with, you know, uh, with shots and he cuts me open and he's like drilling and digging and doing all this work for 30 minutes. And you know how it is. When I'm sitting in the dentist's office, I tell myself it's good, it's good because it's reminding me the consequences of my sins. This is what I deserve for uh, all those years of sinful living. I feel like, but God, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> Don't I get a pass yet? So after the work, he does uh, x-rays again to see how the implant, you know, was placed and my jawbone and everything. And then he tells me, he looks at the x-rays, says, James, you're a perfect candidate for implant surgery. You have, strong, you have a strong jawbone. This is the best work I've ever done. Right? This is the best. And I'm like, really? Of all the dental implant surgeries you've done, I'm the best? And he said, yes, this is the best work I've ever done. I'm not using it on my brochures. I'm like, oh, I'm like filled with pride now. <laughs> I, you know, my heart, I'm like, wow, I'm the best. <laughs> of all the surgeries I've ever done, like this surgery, like, I'm the best. I'm number one. And of course, I, you know, I correct myself. And I realized, James, like, what did you contribute to this implant surgery? The only thing I contributed was a rotten tooth, right? It was only a cavity that wasn't dealt with, and it got infected. The tooth had to be removed. My negligence, my laziness, my sinfulness, that's all I contributed to the surgery, right? This great you know, dentist, he did all the work. He deserves the credit, not me. I shared that story 
to illustrate a spiritual truth. I'm not just sharing with you about my dental experience. Our Christian lives, all we contributed to our salvation is sin. Pride, self-righteousness, arrogance, envy, lust, jealousy, you name it, malice, hatred. That's all we did. Just ruin our lives. Live for ourselves. And God in His grace, He saved us undeservedly, unconditionally. And He began the work of sanctification and He's continuing to this day. So our salvation, our sanctification is wholly God's work. But in our sinfulness, the sin that's still in our flesh causes us to want to take credit for some of this and boast in it of ourselves. Where if we are Christians, we want to take credit for our salvation. And if we're growing, if we're in the Word, if we're praying, if we're ministering, we want to boast in it somehow and rob God of His glory. That's the nature of our sin. We battle it every day. And it goes almost hand in hand with our sinfulness as men. But as we see, as we study Apostle Paul, we are amazed. We are humbled by this godly man because we don't get this sense in Paul's life and ministry. If anyone had a right to boast, if anyone had a right to take pride in his sanctification and his maturity and his ministry, it was the Apostle Paul. Post-Christ, apart from Christ himself, arguably the, the greatest preacher, pastor, teacher, theologian, church planted, planner that ever existed was the Apostle Paul. God used this man singularly, uniquely for the establishment and the growth of the New Testament church. I mean, he was an instrument in God's hands to give us divine revelation. And yet, through it all, he was unreservedly humble. He gave God all the glory for his salvation, his life, and his ministry. Now, how was this possible? I think one of the reasons it was possible is because in God's all-perfect sovereignty, God's way in he saved him helped him to be humble. Because God saved Paul while Paul was at his worst. While Paul was at the zenith of his pride, God chose to regenerate his soul. He was saved while he was drunk with anger and pride towards Christ's church. He was on his way to Damascus without any sense of of reservation or, or any sense of compassion towards men and women that he was persecuting, torturing, and he had murdered. Any sense of that, he was making a beeline towards attacking Christians and God saved him. So because of that, every time Paul remembered his testimony, because of the circumstances of his salvation, he had to remember where he was and what he was doing. He had to remember what was going on in his heart. That he was filled with indignation, filled with anger, he was filled with the sense of being right and being righteous. A deadly combination. Right? You know, every, every man is right in his own eyes. So Paul was right in his own eyes. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought that Christianity was a malignant growth in Judaism. 
It was idolatry. It was blasphemy. It was worthy of de- death penalty. So what he was doing was he was doing the will of God to go after Christians and to persecute them, arrest them, and murder them. But not only did he think he was right, he thought he was righteous. He thought he was pleasing to God. He was holy before God's sight. He was blameless under the law. It was in that circumstance God saved him. So afterwards, every time he shared his testimony, every time he thought about his testimony, he brought up the fact that he was a persecutor of the church. And that helped him in his humility. We're going to conclude our study of the Apostle Paul by looking at the circumstances behind his conversion. Looking at the background, how he got saved, what he was doing, his mindset when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and poured out his mercy, infinite mercy, on this Saul of Tarsus. As a way of reminder, our past three studies, this reminds you just uh, briefly who, how Paul described himself. His Hebrew name was Saul. Gentile name was Paul. City of Tarsus, a Hellenized city outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. He was a Roman citizen with all the responsibilities and all the privileges. He had a stamp of approval from the city of Rome. So he was in a highly privileged situation. We looked at how he was physically unimpressive. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so he was in a Hellenized city. He was not just ethnically a Jew, he was culturally a Jew as well, and he was proud of it. His first language was Hebrew. He was familiar with the culture, tradition, and the religious rites of Israel, of Judaism. He was a member of the Pharisees, a separatist movement. They were devout in obedience to the law of the Lord. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of Israel. Not only that, he was a student under the leading rabbi of Israel, the teacher of Israel, Camillo. Saul of Tarsus studied under him. And two weeks ago, we studied how he was a persecutor of the church. Three times in his epistles, he reminded his readers of his shameful past, how he victimized and afflicted Christians. Now, we come to Paul's final adjective that he used to describe himself. And I would argue his favorite. This was Paul's favorite adjective to describe himself. And that adjective is saved. Saved. Romans 5.9 We are saved by him from the wrath of God. Romans 5.10 We are saved by his life. 1 Corinthians 1.18 To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Gospel. 2 Timothy 1.9 He saved us. Titus 3.5 He saved us. To Paul, this was his most important identity. His foremost identity was not as a Jew or as a citizen of Tarsus, a Roman citizen, or as a tent maker. His first and foremost identity post-Acts 9 was that he was a Christian. That he has been saved by Christ. That God has forgiven him of his many sins. That he, had, he has received mercy from God. From that moment on, he never forgot the pit 
from which he was saved. Let's read the account of his salvation. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 22. This is uh, Luke's account of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul's testimony appears three times. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. We'll camp on Acts 9 and look at how God saved him. Verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many, many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking the food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus Jesus was the Christ. 
there was a watershed event in Christian history. F.F. Bruce has said, no single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. If I could, I'd spend a month in Acts 9 just to honor this man. Such a gift to the church and such a gift to each one of us here. If I were to take a poll, I would say, I'm guessing here, at least 50% of you would say, I was saved by Romans or Ephesians 2 or Colossians 1 or Galatians or Philippians. First Corinthians opened my eyes. It was Second Corinthians that moved my heart. I would say at least 50% of us, God used the Apostle Paul's words to save us. And I would say 100% of believers here have said, in the hour of my deepest need, in the hour of my deepest trial and struggle, disappointment and heartache, in the hours where I almost gave up my Christian life and walked away, it was the words of Paul that have helped me, gave me refuge and comfort, and have granted me endurance to continue in the Christian race. We as Christians owe so much to this man. And all of that began in Acts, in the account given to us in Acts chapter 9. Let's go through this chapter, these 22 verses, portion by portion. Do you remember now when we first saw Paul, right? In Acts 6, he was the one who we believe engaged Stephen in talking about Judaism and the temple. He was the one who gave um, support to the man who accused Stephen and drew him out to blaspheme the temple, saying God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. Heaven is God's throne and earth is His footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Stephen knew what he was doing. He was testifying to Christ and it would cost his life. Saul thought he won, but he was playing into God's hands. Saul, as a member of the Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, didn't want to get his hands dirty. So he had other men do his dirty work. So he guarded the the cloaks of the men who were engaged in stoning him. It's like in high school, right? Your friends would get in a fight and you would say, I'll hold your jacket, right? Give me your wallet, give me your watch. I'll guard it, you go fight, right? That's what Saul was doing, right? By him doing this, he was giving, giving approval as an authority, giving approval of Stephen's death. In Acts 26, he articulated the fierceness of his assault. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And he uses the word plural. So we find out that Stephen was the first martyr, but not the only martyr. And, and Paul was responsible for Stephen's death, but not only him, but many other Christians as well. 
that Saul was responsible for many Christians losing their lives. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, relished in it. I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Damascus was just but one city among many that Paul was going to, to round up Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem, charge them with the charge of blaspheming the temple so that they might execute, execute them. So in Acts 9, we see Paul in the height of his zeal against the Christian church. Luke notes in verse 1 that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. For Saul... He found this calling. He found its niche. Right? He found something that he was excellent at, persecuting Christians. It consumed him. It became his whole life. The word breathing out is expressive often of any deep, agitating emotion. It's like someone who breathes rapidly or violently, and they are losing their breath. Paul was so engaged in murderous threats against Christians that he was breathing rapidly. He was losing his breath. The very air he was breathing was that of threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. The term disciples here refers to all believers, not merely the twelve apostles. Saul wanted everyone he could lay his hands on. After Stephen's death, all the Hellenized Christians who were there in Jerusalem scattered. The, the Hebraic-speaking Jews remained in Jerusalem. The Hellenized Jews who spoke Greek fled to their cities. And so Saul was running out of targets. And he had heard that those Christians who had come from Damascus went back and they were in their synagogue in Damascus preaching Christ. And so he went to the chief priests. He said, I want letters of authority that I might go and find out who these men and women are who are blaspheming the temple grounds, and then I might arrest them with the authority of Israel and bring them back to be charged under the authority of the temple. Having obtained the necessary papers, Saul and his entourage set out for Damascus. With intense hostility, he approached Damascus. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Saul was blind. He was right and righteous in his own eyes. And then, a light. God's intervention. God breaks through. Luke 26 tells us this happened around midday. Height of the sun. Noonday sun. The glory of Christ outshone the sun. He was suddenly stopped dead in his tracks. A light from heaven flashed around him. And Saul and his companions fell into the dirt. Confronted with the appearance of the blazing glory of the risen Christ. Saul, the hardened persecutor of Christians. Filled with mad madness and, and murder in his heart. Was speechless. Those who traveled with Saul heard the voice of the Lord, but they did not understand 
the word spoken? Because the Lord's words were for Saul's ears only. In Acts 22, we find that Paul tells us that the Lord spoke in Hebrew, addressing Saul in his mother tongue. And so Acts 9 doesn't tell us, but other places tell us, Saul not only saw the light and heard the voice of Christ, he saw Jesus himself. Jesus, the risen Lord, appeared to him. Acts 9.27, Barnabas introduced Paul. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul said, Last of all, Christ, he appeared to me also. 1 Corinthians 9.1, defending his apostleship, he said, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? We talked about this two weeks ago. It's God's providence, God's wisdom, how God orchestrates things. God has a sense of drama. The last time the risen Lord appeared to anyone was Stephen while he was dying. Remember? Stephen looked up. And he said, I see the son of, son of man. I see the Lord standing at the right hand of the throne. And then he prays that prayer, modeled after Christ's prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. God the Father answers that prayer. And Christ appears, the next time he appears, is to the man who was responsible for Stephen's death. Appears to Saul personally. Prostrate on the ground, Saul heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The repetition is emphatic. Our Lord did this throughout his ministry. Remember Luke 10, when he was in Martha's home, he wanted to get Martha's attention. She said, Martha, Martha. When in Gethsemane, Peter was being tempted by Satan, through his pride, our Lord addressed him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a repetition of a name was so that he might emphasize, call to attention, might make a declarative statement. Here it marks a rebuke of Paul, intended to get Paul's attention. He asked him, question, why are you persecuting me without cause? Why are you persecuting me? And reflecting the inseparable unity that exists between Christians and Christ. Christ said, whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, you're doing them to me. If you show love to Christians, you're loving me. If you show hospitality to Christians, you're inviting me into your home. You give even a cup of water to a Christian, you're giving me a cup of water on the other hand, if you're persecuting Christians, you're persecuting me. If you hate Christians, if you hate the church, you are hating me. And so by Paul, by Saul of Tarsus, persecuting Christians, Christ was saying, why are you persecuting me? Inseparable connection between Christ and His church. And Saul responded by saying, who are you, Lord? This is not a statement of faith, Lord, curiosity. The statement of uh, respect. Who are you, sir? 
Who are you that is addressing me in this blazing glory of, of light? And Saul heard these words like thunder. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Where is the sting of sin? Where is the power of death? Sin has been consumed by the power of God. Death has been overcome. Christ is victorious. He is alive. He is risen. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, whom he had believed dead, was, was obviously alive. He knew the gospel. He had heard it in his debate with Stephen and other Christians. He, he knew their way of life. He knew their message. And now, our Lord was confronting him with this gospel message. Our Lord told them, Rise and enter the city of Damascus, and it shall be told you what you must do. Luke notes that the men who traveled with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. It was blind. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. His entry into the city was very different than he had anticipated. He had come to arrest Christians, but he was now arrested by Christ. Instead of barging in as the conquering hero, the scourge of Christians, he entered helplessly, blinded, being led by the hand. God crushed Saul. Acts 9.9, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saw him three days and three nights alone with his thoughts. He was physically blind, but for the first time in his life he could see. For the first time in his life he saw himself. He saw his sins. He saw his hatred of God, rebellion against God. Saw his pride. Saw his idolatry. Saw his lust as they are in God's sight. For the first time, instead of being blameless before the law, he was humbled by the law. He was crushed by the law. He understood his sinfulness before a thrice holy God. He was thinking deeply about what had occurred. Hold your finger on Acts 9. and I mean, we go to this passage again and again, but we have to go here right now because we conjecture that these are some of the things that went through Paul's mind as he was blind without food, without drinking water. He was thinking through Philippians 3. That internal transformation was taking place. And he was articulating in Philippians 3. Verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is how he lived. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, of the two tribes that did not compromise in their faith in Yahweh, I was one of them. 
a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to law, I was a member of the Pharisees, the separatists. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet alone in that room, physically blind but spiritually seeing, saw for the first time whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of this, being circumcised in the eighth day, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, being a, a blameless in the law, all of them is cubalon, it's refuse, it's waste, it's dung, it's trash compared to knowing Christ. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that is unattainable, that is impossible, which is impossible, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I believe that was the internal battle that was raging in Saul's heart as he was confronted by the risen Lord. So while Saul waited, blinded and fasting, God was dealing with Saul, but God was also dealing with another man in Damascus, a man named Ananias, back to Acts 9. In Acts 22.12, Luke describes him as devout, well spoken of by all the Jews who live in Damascus. He was likely one of the spiritual leaders of the Damascus church. And this is really uh, you know, ex- extra scripture, extra canonical. This is my hypothesis. But he, maybe he was one of the names that was on Paul's list going to Damascus. One of the guys I need to arrest is this guy named Ananias. One of the leaders of this church and he's spousing blasphemy. I need to arrest this guy. Well, the Lord comes to Ananias. And the Lord said to him, verse 11, Rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. test of Ananias' faith. Look at verse 11 again. I want you to observe carefully the five-word phrase that ends verse 11. For behold, he is praying. Let me make a little rabbit trail here about prayer. Two quick thoughts. First is that when we pray, God is near. When we pray, God comes quickly. God knows the street where Paul is at. God knows which house he's in. He's in the house of Judas. God knows from where this man is from. He's from Tarsus. God knows his name. His name is Saul. And God knows what he's doing at that moment. He is praying. 
This is a declared revelation that when we pray, God knows where we're at. God knows our address. God knows which room. God knows our name. God knows the condition of our hearts. God knows the content of our prayer. It is a glorious fact, saints, that when we pray, it's like diamonds in the sight of God. His eyes are on us and His ears are attentive to our prayers. 1 Peter 3.12 The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are inclined to the prayers. Psalm 10.17 You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Psalm 33.18 The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him. On those who hope in His unfailing love. When we tell you to pray, we're not just telling you to just chant, some kind of mindless meditation, mindless religious ritual. We're telling you and we're telling ourselves, I'm telling myself, God has your attention. Get God's attention. Because God inclines His ear. God knows. God listens. When we, in our desperate state, call out to God, He is near. Secondly, Sincere prayer is a sign of true faith. Sincere prayer is a sign of true faith. The footnote, for behold he is praying, informs us of what Saul was doing during those three days without sight. For three days he was praying. Prayer is a spontaneous response of a believing heart. A clear indication of true conversion to God is prayer. Albert Barnes has said in his commentary of Acts 9, it is always the attendant of true conviction for sin that we pray. The convicted sinner feels his danger and his need of forgiveness. Conscious that he has no righteousness himself, he now seeks that of another and depends on the mercy of God. Before he was too proud to pray, now he's willing to humble himself and ask God for mercy. Those truly transformed by Jesus Christ find themselves lost in the wonder and joy of communion with Him. Prayer is the natural response of Christians who believe in Christ. Paul became a man of prayer. Paul prayed for the first time in his life. Now you might say, what do you mean Paul prayed for the first time in his life? That doesn't make sense. He was a Pharisee. He prayed twice a day. In the, in the hour of prayer, he went to the temple of God, where, Shekinah, where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. And before God's presence, Paul prayed twice a day. What do you mean it's the first time he prayed? Well, if you were able to accompany Paul in those daily prayers twice a day, you would have heard him pray thus. Luke 18, 11 through 12. You would have heard him pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You would have heard Saul not praying, but you would have heard Saul boasting, standing before others, making much of himself, making much of his religiosity, of his achievements, of his righteous deeds, praying about himself, but not praying humbly to a sovereign Lord. 
whatever he was doing in all those years was anything but prayer. For the first time, Saul prayed. He had made many eloquent orations, but they're all good for nothing. Alone. You know, God is the God who sees in secret, right? Matthew 6, in the privacy of his own room, of his own heart, for the first time, Saul prayed to God. And this is Christ's argument to Ananias. Ananias saying, what? You want me to go to Saul? Lord, this is his M.O., this is how he's drawing them out, right? He's drawing out Christians in this way. Right? He's telling us he's a Christian, telling us these lies so that we would go to him and we know he's we're not, we're not born yesterday. He's going to arrest as soon as we walk in those doors. And Christ says, no, Ananias. He's praying to Ananias. That's all he needs. Because prayer is a sign of true faith. Prayer is a sign, evidence of true conversion, of true love for Christ, of genuine humility. See, he who prays in private can be trusted in public. He who does not pray in private cannot be trusted in public. And his faith is questionable. Our Lord tells him, he has seen a vision of you coming, laying his hands on him. Go, verse 15, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Therefore, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So he came to arrest Christians and God arrested him. Right? God chose him. God made him an apostle. God saved him. God elected him. So we see like, you know, this whole free will debate. What are we talking about? We have no free will. Like, where's, like, God violated Saul's will. Right? Saul's will was to hate Christians, murder Christians, persecute the church. And God said, no. Right? You want to fight? I will make you submit to my will. My will is, I'm greater, I'm stronger, I'm mightier. My will is that you are. Christian, and you will be the chosen instrument of God to herald the gospel to Gentiles. So Paul joyfully submitted to his prison, never testing its bars. Galatians 1 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 2 Timothy 1 11, I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. Colossians 1.23 This gospel of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So, strengthened by Christ's words, Ananias goes to the straight street. It's still there actually in Damascus. The straight street is still there. Into the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother, Saw the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and he was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. 
close here with a few final thoughts. Four final thoughts to wrap up our study in the Apostle Paul. We'll begin our study in 2 Timothy next week. First thought is, uh, first truth is more of a hermeneutical issue, more a theological uh, point to understand. That the book of Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. It's a historical account of what happened, not how it ought to happen or how it will happen. The book of Acts is not given to us for us to replicate right, some of the circumstances, like principles we are to replicate, but not the applications, not the details. I say this to highlight the fact that conversion of Saul, the manner in which Saul was saved, was a unique event in the history of the church. It is not normative, not to be repeated. Just like Isaiah 6, Isaiah went to the temple and saw the glory of the Lord and saw the angel seraphim saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Saw the, saw the glory of God. That is a unique event in history, not to be repeated. Likewise, with Saul's conversion. For us to um, wait for that in our lives, for you, I'll believe it when I see the risen Lord. I'm going to persecute Christians, right? I'm going to start breathing out murderous threats and I'm going to go to Damascus or go to Cyprus and start persecuting Christians. And then if Christ appears to me, then I'll believe. And you're just waiting for this, some spiritual experience or event. You're waiting for that to change your heart. You're waiting in vain because this is not God's will for uh, the church today. This is not God's will for how Christians are ought to engage in evangelism and ministry. Years ago, I was involved in apologetics outreach at Whittier College. I, I spoke to you several times about that. A professor from seminary, TMS, and myself, and two other uh, MA students from another seminary were in the panel, and like 50, 60 Whittier College students. And the, the, the theme of that night was um, uh, examining Christianity or Judging Christianity, I can't remember. And, you know, you know, these college students, they always come with these theoretical questions. They think they, they figured it out. They have all the answers. And they go, what about Christians who've never heard the gospel? What happens to them? And our, our well-meaning Christian brothers, well-meaning, but they were wrong. They were saying how if you've never heard the gospel, but you have an open heart, God will reveal himself to you somehow through dreams, through visions, and even personal visitations. And my heart sank as one of them relayed a story of how this person in an African country never heard the gospel, but Jesus appeared to her, and she became a Christian through that vision. And I didn't want to show division before unbelievers. I just told them the way to salvation is the gospel. Because the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. And we see this in Apostle Paul's life. Apostle Paul didn't say, okay, great. That was my conversion experience. I can't wait till every single person experiences this. Gamaliel, man, he'd be great once he sees Jesus and so on and so on. He didn't rest on his feet, you know, sit on a couch and, and relax, knowing that Jesus will appear to everybody and they'll be saved. 
Paul understood this was unique because he was called to be an apostle of Christ, right? To be used to, to deliver divine revelation. Paul understood that people were to be saved through the gospel of Christ. Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on Christ's name will be saved. But he he asks, but how are they to call on Him whom they have never heard? How are they to believe if they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How can they call on Christ if they don't hear the gospel? How can they hear the gospel if no one goes or someone has to go? Therefore, he said in Romans 15, 20, it is my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. He knew rightly that the way for non-Christians to hear the gospel is through Christians, heralding the gospel to them, not through the appearance of Christ. Our well-meaning Christian Christian was undermining the Apostle Paul and undermining all evangelists, all missionaries. By that statement, he was saying, all these missionaries who are risking life, who are sacrificing and suffering, all for naught. Now, why are you in Turkey and getting tortured and killed by Muslims? Why are you in Afghanistan getting kidnapped and getting killed? Why are you in Malaysia? Why are you in all these countries in China, in North Korea? When Jesus will go to them, you don't have to go. Right? Why are we going to OC? Why are we going to Mexico? We should just soak it up here in Orange County and enjoy our Christian lives. That is the case. But that is not the case. Saul's conversion is not to be repeated once in human history, church history, now Christians are saved by the gospel alone. Second is, um, I don't know how else to title it, but unknown fruit. Right? Unknown fruit. It's not in Acts 9, but Acts 22, Our Lord said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. It's hard to kick against the goads. I never knew what that meant. What's goads? What does that mean? And then I, you know, look it up online. Yeah, you know, like, we use that term. Why are you goading me into playing basketball, right? Why are you goading me into doing this? The goat is a long stick with a sharp pointed edge that was used to prod oxen to do their work. And oftentimes oxen didn't want to go, didn't, didn't want to be prodded into work, would kick the stick, right? push against, resist uh, the master. Our Lord was using this as a metaphorical term. Saul, why are you resisting your conscience? Why are you fighting the work of the Spirit in your heart? Now, what was moving in Saul's heart? What was bothering Saul's conscience, causing him to wrestle in his heart as he was on the road to Damascus? I believe, and I think it's very reasonable, it was the gospel message that he heard through Stephen and the manner in which Stephen died. It is powerful. 
suffering for righteousness and not reviling in return, not defending oneself, being not, not, not being afraid of death, not being afraid of suffering, and not threatening, and not defending oneself, that's powerful. Right? We experience that in interpersonal relationships. And that's powerful, right? When someone attacks us at work, and you don't attack back, you don't defend yourself. You submit to God who judges justly. Even husband and wife, you're arguing, and one person is mature in Christ, doesn't revile, doesn't attack, doesn't threaten, but says gracious words, powerful. When Saul saw Stephen proclaiming the words of Christ, and when they were stoning him, his response was, Father, forgive them. Saul was struck in his heart and he was being goaded in his heart. Could, could the gospel be true? Could Jesus be, be real? Is there true forgiveness in the cross? And he was resisting it and Christ was calling him out. Now the point about unknown fruit, Stephen never knew this. Stephen died. In Stephen's eyes, he was doing well in the church of Jerusalem, entangled in a dispute, got in over his head a little bit, thrust between uh, uh, all these false accusers, proclaimed the gospel, and he died. That's all he knows. But we know because of Stephen, because of his bold preaching of the gospel and his humble stance in the gospel, his integrity, God used that to pierce Saul's heart resulting in the conversion of the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest gift to the Christian church. And Stephen never knew it. What an encouragement to us. Right? I, w- I would guess that there, there are many people in our, li- in our lives that invested in us. They were part of our testimonies and they don't know it. Years ago, freshman in college, I was sitting alone, I was smoking, having lunch, minding my own business, submitting class. I'm sure these are CCC guys come up to me and they want to share the gospel. I've been, I know what they're doing. I said, shut up, get out of my face. And they're like, oh, they're so gracious, they're so kind. Can we just share this Bridge to Life track? And I forbid them. I told them, like, I'm going to stand up and, you know, remove you guys, you know, personally if you do this. And they said, okay, can we just share one verse with you? And I said, man, I cursed at them. I told them to get out of my face. Right? You know, months later, I, never, I still don't forget. I haven't forgotten that. It was years ago. Those guys, God bless them, never knew that I became a pastor. Maybe they'll hear the sermon. and <laughs> Hey, you were that guy, the Asian guy in business building. But God used that. They'll never know. They'll, they'll maybe die thinking, wow, we were awful evangelists when we were in college. Right? There are people in your life, maybe your Sunday school teacher, maybe your high school friend, college friend, that was powerfully used by God to invest in your, to help you open your heart to Christ, and they'll never know. As Stephen's a case, we have many cases like this, and it continues to this day that we are being watched, that we are being listened to by family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, and strangers, and we make an influence, and most, more than not, you will never know what impact we have made except in heaven. 
encouragement to us, is it not, when we do uh, BBS ministry? Right? I know. You know, you, you, when Thursday night I was preaching and preaching, you know, prepared my heart out, prepared, preached the gospel to these children. And I said, Amen. The kids are like, Okay, what are we going to eat for snacks? <laughs> like, I'm bleeding truth here. And they just want pretzels, right? Maybe as a, all your classes too, right? I asked Elizabeth, What did you learn today? Oh, we just played games today. He doesn't remember. Right? You don't remember anything? I don't remember. Right? Right? Mexico ministry, OC team, you go out and you do all this work. Where is the fruit? I'm so discouraged. I just get rejected and rejected. Well, think of Stephen. Think of the people that have helped you in your Christian salvation. And remember unknown fruit. How God is using you. That we sow, we water, but God causes growth in His time. Third and finally, just three. Uh, Here we see uh, Paul model true faith. The first thing he does post-conversion is meet with believers. Verse 19b, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. About a week before, he hated these people. He was hell-bent on destroying them, persecuting them, tormenting them. He was a man of hubris. He enjoyed causing them suffering because they were undermining his, his religious faith. Now he's dining with them, and he's with them. Shows that true faith is if you love Christ, you love Christ's church. Right. First John 3.14 we know that we have passed out of death onto life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love brothers, fellow Christians, abides in death. If you say you love God and you cannot see, but you do not love Christians whom you do see, you are deceived. You are still in darkness. It's an evidence of false regeneration false profession and false conversion. Disingenuous profession. A true Christian loves Christ and loves Christians. And then second measure of true faith is verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God. True faith produces a heart that loves to share Christ, loves to proclaim Christ, understands that Christ loves all men. 2 Corinthians 5, and Christ's love compels us, for he died so that we will no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. True faith compels our hearts to, to carry this message right, across the street, across borders, that others may hear the gospel and be saved as well. God has did this work, so I'm not boasting of myself. I mean, Mike Sim asked me at VBS, James, when did you decide being a pastor? And I told him, I never decided to be a pastor. God saved me, and I just love sharing the gospel. I just love sharing scripture, sharing Christ. Before, I just shared, like, bad things, right? Sinful things. I love sharing, like, sinful things, right? Now, I want to share Christ, things of Christ, right? And 
I haven't closed my mouth since, right? That's all I'm doing. It's not a profession. It's not occupation. God saved me. And to me, the gospel saved me. And I want to share this with anyone. And adults wouldn't listen to me. Peers wouldn't listen to me. So only junior high, high school kids would listen to me. <laughs> so I would share with them. And I'm older. They can't leave. I'm giving them rides. I'm just share and share and share. Next thing I know, I'm a pastor. But not just a pastor, but all Christians. Saved by Christ. Just like Paul. Love to share. Boldly share the gospel. And verse 21 results in edification of the church. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your sovereign work in Apostle Paul's life. And Lord, we're thankful because we see the same gracious work in our own lives. We are not foreigners to this grace, to this mercy, to this wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're partakers of it. We are co-heirs with Christ and with Paul in the salvation given to all of us. So Lord, we honor and exalt Praise your name. Oh God, we see so many wonderful and precious truths in Saul's conversion. Help us to carry this water home. Lord, help us not to be like those look at the mirror and immediately forget what we look like. Help us to be like the ones who intently look at the perfect law which gives freedom and would seek to Obey its precepts. Follow through on its commands, on your commands. And live out ah, the gospel of Christ in our lives. May we carry forth the gospel message given to us through your son and the apostle Paul. May we faithfully carry it in our leg of the race to the generations to come. We give you humble praise. For you have done it all. All we contributed was sin. All we contributed was violence and, and rebellion. Lord, you did it all. Therefore, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.